Thanks for tuning in to the Loser Kid Pinball Podcast. This is episode number 18. With me, as always, is my co-captain. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Josh? Apparently, your <laughs> back really sucks. <laughs> yeah, you know it, man. Yeah, uh, I've had a little bit of back issues today. It's been a... and yesterday. And honestly, a whole lot of just laying on the ground is helping a lot. <laughs> yeah, you need to stop so, moving those pinball machines by yourself. Hey, don't tell my wife that. Yeah. <laughs> She'll believe you. Oh, I know. That's why you need to come out and help me move Genie on Saturday. You know it. Um, yeah, I, I already, dude, I want to be there to, uh, Saturday so bad for the tournament going on. But that's that's something entirely different. We'll we'll get to that later. Okay. Well, well, here's what you do. You you get permission. Come up to the tournament. We take Genie down to my house. We unload it, and then you crash here. Then you go back to uh, Saturday morning. Job done. Dude, I can't, or Sunday I can't morning. even set in a car to go across town. I doubt I can make the 180-mile trip. <laughs> have I have I introduced you to my friend Ibuprofen? It, dude, it's it's taking the edge off. That's about it. So. I see. But um, we got a doubleheader tonight. We've got Chris Hutchins of High End Pins, and we've also got Brad Albright of the Led Zeppelin Project. So shall we get into this? Go ahead. All right. Let's have you introduce uh, Chris for us. So this is Christopher Hutchins. If you are unfamiliar with him, he has a thread on Pinside, uh, which is uh, details his high-end restorations. Go ahead and check out his website, too. It's highendpins.com. Chris, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, restoring. People get into restoring cars a lot. However, not too many people decide to specialize into restoring pinball machines to their former glory. So take me down this path. How did you end up doing what you do? Yeah, so you know, most people are probably smart enough not to try to make this a profession, but um, I started out as a auto painter, a high-end auto painter. I was actually born and raised in the auto body business, and um, you know, I would just you know wanted to get a pinball machine for my game room, that kind of thing, and um, you know, I got I got a. A, a couple bad games, you know, they were pretty rough and I start, you know, I just really wasn't satisfied with them and I have OCD. So I started looking at these things. I'm like, you know, I think I could probably take this apart and paint this and do that and, you know, make it look better. So that's how it kind of started. I was trying to satisfy myself with my own games and um, that's what kind of read the the whole idea of you know hey i could probably do this uh and for a living also okay when was that when did you start doing that how many years ago that was, that was probably i guess maybe 18 or 19 years ago okay and so you've been restoring these ever since when did you transition to say you know what i can do this for a living so I, I guess that was probably around 2004 that uh, I finally decided to do it full time. And the reason I did that was uh, I, at first I would buy the games that I wanted and I would fix them up and then I would sell them when I got tired of them. And after I sold them to a couple people, they were like, well, you know, you did a great job on this thing. Could I send you a game? And have you do the same thing to a game I already have? And I hadn't even, that had never even dawned on me at the time. 
And so after that happened, then I, I started to see that, you know, I'm able to, cause you, you would never survive doing this locally. There's just, there's not enough people in, in Charlotte, North Carolina of all places that would, would want a pinball machine restored. So then I kind of figured out, well, you know, I'm able to draw from the whole country. So I could probably generate enough business to make a similar living that I'm already making, uh, doing cars. So that's, that's around 2004 is when that demand got big enough to where I, I felt comfortable enough to take that, that kind of leap. So you speak of 2004, you know, lately we've been talking a lot about the renaissance of pinball and the real big resurgence we started really coming in effect in 2014. Did, has your business picked up since then? Or, I mean, 2004, a lot of people talked about it was dead back then. Like how were you getting tons of pinball machines back then? That just seems, I don't know, weird yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah. I did actually, you know, I, I had, I think I had more games back then than I have now, but that was probably poor management on my part. <laughs> you know, I just didn't know, I didn't know how long it would take to do them or, or what, uh, you know, what, you know, I just, I wasn't probably, nobody had a blueprint for, Hey, if you restore pinball machines, this is how you do it. And this is how you handle it. You know, if you own a restaurant, there's kind of a blueprint there or car dealership. There's a lot of different things that people have done and, and it's pretty well versed, but with what I was doing, it was, nobody else was really doing it or not at that level. So I had to figure it out. So in 2004, I had, you know, uh, plenty of games because you really didn't have the ability to get a new game. Stern would make maybe one or two games a year, maybe. And that was pretty much it. So we were just, if somebody wanted a, a really nice game, the only way they were going to do that is to get, you know, a beater and, and restore it. Um, so back then it was it was definitely the dark ages as far as parts and things but you know there was a demand yeah it, it seemed like you you're right the uh, right before that and i know you mentioned this before uh lord of the rings and simpsons pinball party came out but you really didn't have any great games that people say i want to buy that and put it on my house there's a few that have come out that you know maybe stern's pirates maybe uh spider-man but it seemed pretty much dead that entire decade until you got to the likes of ACDC, Tron, uh, those type of games. Yeah, definitely a, a much bigger influx these days. Uh, there's so much new pinball. Uh, it's a different kind of um, collector, though, than we had back then. Back then, you know, it was people that there was a lot more nostalgia based and, and that kind of thing. And these days it's, it's much more, you know, wow, look at this new, this looks cool or this is new. I haven't seen that before. And so it's definitely a different, it's a, it's a different vibe for sure. Did you ever in those times get hit up uh, to pretty much build a machine from scratch? Like those coveted machines, like medieval madness and attack from Mars that were, highly sought after at that time. I guess they still are nowadays, but we have remakes. But did, did anyone ever hit you up and say, hey, this is the game I want. I can't find it. Will you build it for me? Yeah, I built one or two games from scratch. And after I did that, I really learned that it's not, it's not, a. it can be done, you know, obviously, but um, it's not a, a good business model because almost every time I would 
wind up spending in parts as much as it would cost and, and much more than that in aggravation trying to get everything that, that you would need. Because when people talk about building a game from scratch, they I think a lot of times they don't realize how many intangible parts there are. It's the little things that really come back to haunt you. It's not the, the play fields or the cabinets or the canar. It's the little stuff. It's the ball guides. It's the wire forms. It's, it's these kind of things that can be really impossible to um, recreate. And if you, and especially recreate at a high level, I mean, you could make a ball guide that works, but it looks like it's been, you know, pulled down the road by a tractor trailer or something by the time you beat it with a hammer a hundred times to bend it and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's really not uh, that practical way to do it. A lot of guys do that for fun. I think they just enjoy the challenge of it, but it's really not that practical. You're better off just to buy a really rough game and go from there. So how how rough of a game? I, I've seen your restores go from something that looks like it was a uh, left in a dungeon and recovered after uh, 20 years of being slept on by rats. And I've also seen ones that I thought, actually, this is this is a pretty decent game. Uh, where do you, where is the sweet spot for finding a game that you want to restore? Yeah, I think the best way to handle it is to either buy something that's very cheap and and know that it's very rough and it's going to take a lot of work and you're going to spend a lot of money in parts, or to buy something that's not too nice but you know decent, you know maybe low routed that kind of thing. Those are the those are the best ways to handle it. Uh, occasionally, people will send a home use only game, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, they they certainly can benefit from being taken apart and gone through and and things like that. But there, that's a little bit overkill. But um, usually, you just want the to get what you're paying for. So if you you know get a piece of junk and you paid a piece of junk price that's fine or if you got a decent game and you paid a little bit more for it that's fine but more often than not what's happening is people are paying for a game they think is nice and it's really a piece of junk so that's yeah. that's the biggest issue that you run into with this sometimes that you you know somebody's overpaid for a, a game and they're going to need the same type of restoration as somebody that you know could have got you know the biggest piece of junk out there because at the end of the day, whatever makes it just a little bit nicer, it isn't that much nicer. So you were talking about kind of some smaller intangible parts. Have you ever received a machine that was kind of more on the rare end of the spectrum and it's been kind of hard to restore because of the fact that there's no parts available for it? Yeah, I, um, I've done a few games like that. The, the, the worst one I remember doing was uh, Crawl, and it wasn't because the game was incomplete it was because the condition of the game was so poor that it may as well have been incomplete. So you look at a game, you're like, well, I need a plastic set. Well, you're not going to find a plastic set for crawls. So the only way you're going to do that is to make one. And that's not an easy thing. You, you know, you got to involve an artist. You have to talk to the people that have the license and, you know, there's just a lot of things to it. And um, and then you get to painting the cabinet. Well, you need stencils for it. Well, you know, obviously they don't, that's not a big demand. So you have to network with people. So when you get those kind of games, then you have to, you really have to lean on your, you know, the people and your resources to try to 
to try to get somewhere that you can work from. You know, there's a lot more networking that goes into those kind of things in the background. There's probably not that many people who are aware of one uh, crawl as the uh, the B action movie it was in the 80s, and two that there was actually a prototype pinball machine. How many were there? About four, four or five? Yeah, I think it was like maybe five or six. I think maybe, and I I had heard that maybe one of them. I think one of them or might have been King Kong. I, I've done a couple of those too, but. Um, it was either Crawl or King Kong, but I think one of them got lost in a fire, which, you know, uh, as rare a game as those are, you, you know, you can only imagine that happening. Yeah. And then the Crawl, it has basically a, a near full-size lower uh, lower play field with a, with a special glass that you can see it. I, am I seeing it right? I've never seen one in per- person, but I've seen a lot of pictures. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. It's basically like Haunted House or Black Hole, but... The window that they use is this really strange, I don't know what the proper term is for it, but I think it makes things look maybe smaller. I don't know. It's, it's a really weird, um, when you look through it, you know, it's not like a kaleidoscope, but it's, it's I, I don't know what the proper term is for it, but it's, it's a very strange uh, window. And again, another thing that, you know, when you have a game like that and you're working on it, it's very stressful. I mean, you just take the back glass out and you carry it across the shop. You know, like, don't, please don't break or, you, you know, be careful with that. And, you know, every little piece of it's like that. So those games, so, I, you know, those kind of games are, are stressful to deal with. And um, it's a, you know, that's a really rare one. I could imagine just for you, the, the anxiety level of that you're just thinking i it's not like i can just order it from uh, pinball life or something like that can you give me a, a replacement crawl play field so yeah it, it's terrible so it, one of the big things that's really been coming up is is play field issues and it it seems that during the time of uh, of pinball these these issues seem to ebb and flow sometimes they're good sometimes they're bad and from your expertise, one, why do you see that as happening so much? Because obviously there are play fields in the past that had a certain uh, type of clear coat that have lasted and others that haven't lasted. So I don't, do you have any sort of insider take on that? More than likely what's happening is the materials. Well, what I, what I see is the materials, they're not hardening. They're, so they're staying soft. They're staying in a, a state of, of not being cured. You know, why that's happening can be, there's a lot of reasons for that could cause that to happen. Uh, they could be mixed poorly. It could be a bad batch product. Uh, it could just be whatever the um, environmental regulations are at the time for the people that are making it. It could have some impact on their product. Um, so there's a lot of different reasons why it would be that way, but as a painter over the years, we would constantly see a change of product lines. You know, you would get used to something and it would work for you great. And next thing you know, the paint rep would come in and say, you know what, they're, they're reformulating and we're going with this now. And the reasons they would do that would be, you know, there would be a lot of different reasons behind it. The, 
the mentality while they were doing it. Sometimes it would be profit margins. Sometimes it would be uh, EPA regulations. Sometimes it would be because they honestly thought it was better. Um, and I think that's why we see the same kind of issues with play fields and changes. They probably won't know that something's wrong until it's too late and they're out on the streets and they're seeing these issues and then they'll, they'll work to resolve it. But the reason that, that we're seeing it now is, is really an unknown, but there's definitely something wrong. Do you think that, um, sorry, I'm thinking from a, I, I'm from heating and air conditioning background and the EPA messes with our jobs. I swear every two years on something like this, because yeah. a lot of the issues that have been coming up, people just go, why don't we go back to the diamond plate years of the nineties? But then it comes up to the EPA part is the product that's being used nowadays not as good as it was back in the 90s is it not as easy to use is is there a reason because it, it seems like clear coats in my opinion should be something consistent like regardless um you should know your product you know what i'm saying yep definitely and so i personally think there shouldn't be an issue because if you know your product <laughs> if you've learned to use your product then you won't see these issues so i guess i guess the question i'm coming up with does the EPA really play a, a huge factor into clear coat or is it more of the manufacturers? And I don't want to put you in a position where you're, you're calling anyone out. We're not, we're not asking for that, but what you've seen, cause you've obviously been doing this for 15 years now. Has it affected you differently? Yeah. Well, the, the issue with the EPA, as far as that goes in general, over the years, I, I've been actually painting for, I don't know, 25 or, or longer, maybe 28 years, something like that. So, so you know, and I use the same paints and chemicals that I used back then. So, you know, I've had a constant, um, you know, a constant uh, hands-on experience with these chemicals way outside of pinball for a long time. And um, the, the thing that we've always seen as far as that goes is it's unfortunate, but the best way I can put it or the, the simplest way I can put it is the less toxic the paints, the less um, the less they work, which is probably not the most eloquent way to say it. But they just don't the, – the more toxicity they take out of the paints, the more troublesome they become. And I understand why they do that because of health concerns and environmental concerns and things like that. But that speaks a lot to why the paint or the clears that we use today are not – as good as the ones they used in the nineties and, um, and the ones that we were using in the nineties probably weren't as good as the ones in the eighties and those kind of things, because that toxicity is what creates the chemical reactions and hardens pain or makes it really stick well, or makes it really bite into something. And as they double them down, we lose those properties. So that's, that's the issue there, um, in my opinion, or in experience. And um, as far as the manufacturers go, no matter what their product lines are, you know, I think what we can definitely say is they're clearly not testing it or, or putting it through any kind of real world test because if they did, it wouldn't be out here doing the things that, that we're seeing. You know, they, they would have caught that. And if they knew that and they still put it out, then that's real, that's even worse. But they're, they're hurting themselves more than they're hurting even the people 
that are getting these flawed play fields because you know that it's hurting their their business um by doing that but um but yeah i think the the biggest issue that we're seeing is they're they're clearly not testing this stuff or are putting it through a real world type test because it doesn't take anything just to screw down let's just say you screw a post down very tight you come in the next day if it's bubbled then then there's a problem so that's a test i could run here tonight so if i'm making a play field i would probably rerun that test uh definitely before i started shipping play fields out i think it's one of those challenges where you have the the latent defect uh that that's a you know the construction term where they say hey we thought it was good but down the line it really you know something happened so sure there's there's certainly the early issues you can see and the issues with playing over time that you can't see um but yeah i i I wish I knew more about the process to figure out what uh, what's going on because again it seems that they they quiet down for a while and then they then they come back in and it's it I don't know where that sweet spot is or if there's a flaw in the manufacturing process that they're trying to cut a corner or they're doing something it just seems so bizarre. Yeah, it is strange and the biggest thing about that is uh I don't know what kind of clear coat they use. I mean, uh, people uh assume that they're using an automotive clear coat but they probably aren't. I mean, it's it's a wood product, and they're probably using some wood-type um, favorable clear coat. Only automotive places use automotive clear. You know, it's, it's doubtful that they're actually using automotive clear on them. I mean, we use that, but, but you know, it, this is uh, one, one at a time, you know, type operation, and, and that – that is a whole different ball game, but uh, I seriously doubt they're actually using an automotive clear. I think a lot of people assume they do. I know that some of the aftermarket guys like uh, CPR, they do actually use an automotive clear, but you know, the manufacturers, I seriously doubt they're using that. Now, is that, is that a cost issue or because I mean, automotive automotive, that is a mass production uh, product. I mean, you, you're pumping out, all those cars all the time and so they have to have some sort of process that is that is quick and reproducible but like why couldn't is there a reason why that couldn't translate to what we're doing or is it because it's it's a big enough process in making pinball machines but not that big versus what you do which is a a tailored handcrafted rolex type approach like you know there seems to be some gap in how they're doing it Automotive clear coat is, uh, it hardens within, it's got a pot, you know, they, they call it a pot life. It's got a pot life of, some of it can be 30 minutes, some of it can go maybe even as long as two hours. But in a, a mass production environment, two hours, I mean, they couldn't possibly accomplish, you know, or get everything done uh, and cleared, I wouldn't think, uh, in two hours and this might be, and this is just in theory, but this is might be why they have the hardening issue, um, because if they're using robotic equipment, there's a possibility that the mixes that are sprayed through a robotic um, uh, through a robot are made to purposely not harden too quickly, because it would 
harden within the plumbing of the robot and ruin the robot or make a mess for somebody to clean up or try to get the hardened material out of the robot. So, you know, whatever material they're, they're using, it has to stay, um, it has to stay solvent for a much longer period of time than most automotive clear coats would if they're doing things in large batches. Um, you know, if I go out there and clear a play field, you know, I'm clear a play field. I'll be done with it in 15 or 20 minutes after I mix the, the clear and whatever's left over. If I go out there in a couple hours, it's hard, you know, and, and that's fine. But you can't really do that. If I was going to do 50, I couldn't do 50 in one. I would have to mix clear repeatedly over and over and over to, to make sure I had something that wasn't um, in a hardened state by the time I got to the end of it. So that brings up a question in my mind, because a lot of what I've heard over the couple of, what is this, been a month now, we've been having these issues, month and a half, of, of clear coat gate, or whatever they're calling it nowadays, <laughs> whatever the kids are calling yeah. it. But uh, <laughs> so my question is, a lot of the conception is, is, well, sometimes it takes clear coat 20 plus days to harden, or it does this and that. Is that true? Or it, I mean, it sounds like you're saying it takes anywhere about 30 to 20 or 30 minutes to two hours. Should that be pretty much the case all the way around? Yeah, well, you know, you have two different states. So you have hardened. So uh, when it, when it, you know, initial, the initial drying of it is it's hardened. So it's kind of like if you had some in the bottom of a cup, it be, turns into, let's just say it turns into like a little clear hockey puck. And it's, but it's still spongy, you know, it, but it, but it's hardened. You couldn't spray it. You could, you know, it's not liquefied anymore. So the initial 30 minutes to two hours is when it is no longer liquefied. And then you have cure time. So that's what really people are talking about when they're talking about the second phase of it, which is the cure time. And, you know, clear, it can vary. Some of them can, you know, fully cure in 30 days, some of them 60, some six months. But that doesn't have a whole lot of impact on the overall hardness of it so you know after a week let's just say a week max you should not be able to bury your fingernail in and make an impression in the clear coat it may still be in a a state of cure where it's still not fully uh shrunken and that's kind of what curing is it's shrinking it's it's drawing in it's um it's evaporating more and more. And as it does that, it, it, it tightens the surface, it tightens. Um, but you know, within a week you shouldn't be able to put a fingernail in it. If you can, if I had something that I had clear coated a week later that I could still put a fingernail in, I would be concerned. I would probably start thinking about needing to redo it. And uh, you know, from an automotive standpoint, I mean, you couldn't send somebody's car out the door, you know, in that state, because as soon as a rock hits, it, you know, uh, going down the road, it's, it's, it's going to chip or it's going to indent. So, so, um, but, uh, anyway, to answer the question more directly, it's two different phases. You have the hardening of the product. That's the initial hardening that happens within 30 minutes to two hours. And then you have the curing state, which is the total evaporation, um, of any solvents in it. And that can take anywhere from weeks to months. Well, uh, hopefully they'll figure it out very soon. And if not, I uh, plead with them to call Chris and bring him up for his uh, consultant. No, man, I can't, I can't help them. I, I don't know what they're doing over there. 
Okay, well, let's move on to some more fun stuff. So um, my friend uh, here, he has basically the best of Bally Williams out there. And uh, he's actually really good friends with Jim McCune, who used to do very similar stuff to you. Uh, yep. lives, down, lives in St. George, Utah. Um, he's, he has a, a, an amazing scared stiff that Jim has restored. And he has a Adams family gold that he keeps trying to talk Jim into getting back into business. And so I said, no, just let Jim, let Jim be, let's send this to Hep and let him let, you know, let Chris take care of it. So I said, you know, Jim will tell him the same thing. Yeah, no, no, I I know, I know, and I I've been he's I, he's really good friends with Jim. Jim's a great guy. Yeah, Jim's a great guy. Yeah, but so so he actually he was texting me. He, I I work with him, and I said, hey, I, I'm talking to Chris right now, and he's like, okay, so ask him how uh, when he I, he can do my Adams family gold for me. <laughs> so what what is the so let's drive some business to you. What is the lag time when people contact you and say, hey, I have a game, I want to restore it to when it actually gets on your table to uh, what's the average restore time? And I know that's a loaded question because uh, every restore is completely different depending on parts availability. But uh, say I were a client calling you for, uh, for advice, what would you tell me? Yeah, I usually tell most people four to six months and that's fairly true. Uh, you know, but it really depends. Honestly, sometimes, you know, a game will come in and a month after it's, it's came in, you know, everything's kind of lined up and it can go right in. And then there's other games that are really difficult and they might sit here for, you know, 10 months before, because it's a certain type of project. So it's really hard to, it's really hard to put into words what makes, uh, one one project flows so quickly and another one takes so long. But the, the biggest issue with them is typically that I, I will take in almost anything. And sometimes that is, um, sometimes that, that leads to, to some really challenging projects and you have to be as, as conceited as it sounds, I guess you have to feel like working on it or you have to be in the mood because if you aren't that, that work's going to suffer because you know, you have to feel like, uh, I think right now I've been painting, uh, or this week I've been painting a radical cabinet. You know, it, it, you got to feel like painting a radical cabinet. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not, it's not a fun thing to do because, you know, so, so anyway, it depends on the job and the thing, but you know, cookie cutter games, Adam's families and, you know, these, these really straightforward games, Twilight Zone, you know, four to six months is, is not a problem to turn those around. Some of them get turned around in two or three months. But the more complex stuff, you know, these spirits and this radical and a lot of these other things I'm working on, sometimes it takes a, a year or longer. Well, because I know that you uh, you uh, adjusted your posting on Pinside because you used to do it a game at a time and talk about the restoration process. But then you have since transitioned, which I really love how you're doing daily and weekly updates to say, hey, this is what I'm working on right now. And it's amazing to me. I, I, it certainly makes sense. But you're working on about three or four games simultaneously, uh, depending on what, it, what is available or what the parts are going in. And so that that seems to be a big juggling project. It can be. I uh, used to maintain this photo gallery. It's still up there. It's a great photo gallery, but things got so instant 
uh, these days with your phone and you can text people and you can take a picture of something and just put it right on a pen side or something like that. And I have this photo gallery and I used to take, uh, I have a digital camera and I would take, I would have to take 50 digital pictures and because it would, if I took 50, I would walk away with about 20 that weren't blurry. And then I'd have to, you know, upload them to the photo gallery and put the captions up there and do all that. And that's how I used to keep people informed with their projects, but it really didn't help that much because it would, they still wouldn't know what, what, you know, when their turn would be or what was next or that kind of thing. So that uh, transition that I did on Pinside has really been helpful. It, it, it really helps people know what's going on and, you know, basically whatever you see, that's what I'm doing. I mean, it's just me. So if I'm working on uh, Dracula, then that's, that's what I'm doing. I can't be, do, you know, but, uh, but I do bounce. I have like three or four active projects at a time probably really like eight, you know, but, uh, but I'm always, you know, I kind of get it going a certain direction and then I'll zero in on one and, and get it across the finish line. So is there like a specific game that's just your favorite to restore or is there like a type of era that you like better than another? Uh, I, I definitely like the WPC games the best just because, they're, well, maybe even the WPC 95 games, but they're remaking all of those. So so I had to gravitate back towards the WPC games, but they're the easiest for me to work on uh, because I'm just, I, I just, there's something about those games. I've done so many of those in particular that I just, I know everything about them. I know which way the diodes need to go. I know uh, what color the wiring is for this, that, and the other thing. You know, I just know everything about it and you know it just i don't need to look at any pictures i don't need to look at any manuals i i know that you know so i like those because they go together really well although i'm starting to get that same kind of feeling about these um early valley solid state games so those are my favorite games to actually restore are the the early valley solid state games you know the Harlem Globetrotters, the Centaurs, the Fathoms. I like the painted cabinet games with the um, real back glasses. I really like those games a lot. It's just, maybe it's my age. I'm 47. Well, I will be in a a couple more days. But um, it's just what I remember playing when I was a kid. And I like that, the simplicity, how they would take just three colors and do the art for the cabinet. But it was cool looking. And they would have the real back glasses and that kind of thing. So I would say I like uh, restoring those games the best. Yeah. When, when I, I was following and you recently did a Harlem and every time I saw an update on that, I was just looking at that saying, man, I really need to get a Harlem because Chris makes this thing look really good. It's, it's just that classic look. And I, I love seeing that. That would be a great showcase showcase to have in a basement. Yeah. Those games are really cool. I mean, I, you know, like I said, they, they did so much with so little back then. Yeah. So I, I have I have two remakes. I have Medieval Madness and I have an Attack from Mars. And what what are your feelings on uh, the reason why I bought them is because when I bought them you couldn't buy a Medieval Madness because it was too expensive. Uh, in an Attack from Mars, and I, I got the the LE, so I, I like the top or the interaction. Uh, from your standpoint, the restoration standpoint. Do you see much of a difference between the remakes and the classics, or do you feel that there's there's a pretty good overlap? Yeah, you know, well, I think they're 
completely different mechanically, uh, or maybe not mechanically, probably best to say electronically, because mechanically, you know, they still have coils sure. and stuff, but but they're not, you know, they're not as easy to work on, or I, I'd say they're not as user-friendly, but at the same time, I mean, I can definitely understand the draw of them, I mean, because you're going to get a brand new attack from Mars for like, what, six or $7,000, yeah. and uh, compare that to you know, a uh, routed one, even if you get one for $5,000, it's going to need like a seven or $8,000 restoration. So it's a $14,000 game. And if you put them side by side and you don't know a lot about it, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty tough thing to justify. So I think they're, I think they're great. I think they remade the right ones. And, um, you know, I don't think there, there's anything wrong with them, but I, the biggest issue I see with them is, there's just a lot of unknowns about them. We just won't really know, uh, you know, for a few years. Yeah. And I think that's from the restoration standpoint. Can yeah. you, I, you know, you can keep a, uh, a 20 year old Williams game going. Can you keep a 10 year old Chicago gaming uh, company game going? And I, th those are, those are certainly legitimate questions from the right person, which is you. Yeah, I think if they're successful, if Chicago Coin is successful, then yeah, you know, because they'll be there to keep making parts and, and they'll have a, a desire to keep their products on the streets and running. But if for some reason, you know, they fizzle out, then it's going to be a problem. So a, a follow-up question is when you're restoring, I, I, I was just flipping through your, uh, your picture book. And I saw that you just finished a, a scared stiff, which is very similar to my friends. And he, you know, he's added some mods and he's, he's taken some out the, the mod. I don't know if you put that in this game, but there's a really cool mod that had eyes that actually looked back and forth. Um, and he put that in his game. Where is that line that you walk on what mods you're going to put in versus mods when you think that looks kind of cheesy. That's a little too much. Like, because you know, sometimes it looks like the entire thrift store has been shoved under glass, which just seems way too much. And yeah. then there's other times when, like, for my Tron, I looked at my Tron, I thought, I don't know, it just seems really missing. Yeah, mods are really tricky because, uh, well, for me, the the first criteria is it needs to look. Um, at least on par with factory parts. So a lot of the mods that you see are just, they look like toys and they're, you know, they're glued together and they're sloppy and they, the quality of them does not match up to the quality of the other parts on the play field. So that's a huge, that's a huge red flag. So that's the first thing I look at as far as if I would use a mod or not use a mod. Uh, the next thing is it, is what does it really do? Does it really enhance the game or is it just another toy so somebody can sell something to somebody else? Um, and another issue that a lot of people don't look at, but you really have to consider, because I've run into this many times, is is it a ball trap? You know, it might look really cool to put, you know, thing over there on this little plastic next to the scoop, but if you find out that the ball gets stuck behind him every time you hit the targets, it's no good. So, um, you know, so those are a lot of the things that we look at as far as if, if I want to put a mod on there or not. But for me, I generally try to steer away from them if I can, and um, I'll put whatever somebody asked me to put on there. 
I would definitely do that, but I don't prefer any of them specifically because it can be the only reason that you have a lamp shorting or it can be, you know, again, a ball trap or it could fall off, you know, by the time it bounces from here to California, you know, so, so mods are kind of really individual and most people that are in this hobby are more than capable of putting their own mods on and, and I certainly put anything anybody asks me to put on there unless I know it's a bad idea. But, but generally speaking, I'm not against them, but they need to be really good before I would put one on there. Yeah. So uh, two more questions. One, if you were restoring a game for yourself, what would, what, what would it be right now? Oh, man. I think if I was going to restore a game for myself, I, I have unusual taste. I would probably do a police force really <laughs> why yeah and then there was crickets <laughs> i think i think i would actually i i think i would probably try to do it like a re-theme i would either do it like i don't know kojak or something cool you know i don't know or something not cool i kind of like things that aren't cool but but either way you know i i always like i like obscure things i i would rather have the only HEP police force in the world than the 50th HEP medieval madness, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, okay. So seriously, I don't even know what police force looks like. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's not the most attractive game. That's for sure. It's probably not the most, well, it's pretty fun, but, but you know, just, you know, I, I like the obscure games. I really like system 11 games. Um, but uh, I think I I don't know it's I don't know if it's charity or what it is, but I I want to bring justice to things that haven't been given any justice. Okay, is there really like a uh, cop that's a jaguar on the back glass? I think so, but we could turn him into Kojak. I'm pretty oh. sure we could. <laughs> okay, that okay. I will say of all the of all the pins that you were gonna pull out. In a million years, I would not have guessed that one. <laughs> well, but, you know, what, what can I say? I mean, that's something I, I've really been thinking about doing that. One day, one day I'm going to do that. That's great. Well, uh, Chris, anything else that you're thinking about that you want to that you want to bring a, for a last comment? Yeah, uh, not really. I mean, I think that uh, I think we've covered all the bases. All right. Well. Let's let, let's get some people to your website. How can they contact you, and how can they restore the best uh, to get the best pinball restored game out there? Uh, the best way to do it is just to go to highendpins.com, and you know all, everything's there. My phone number's there. Uh, you know the email things there. All that stuff's there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chris. All right, man. I appreciate it as well. Alrighty, our next guest is the infamous Mr. Brad Albright. He has been working currently on the project of Led Zeppelin with Roto Dave. If you know Roto Dave from Australia, uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, Pinside has it listed as one of the most recent pins that have been included into their system. Um, they took a Bally Freedom and rethemed it. Brad is the man that did all the artwork. It's beautiful artwork. We've got him on now because we we want to talk about this thing. It's it's. I think it's fantastic. So without further ado, I'm going to shut up now. Brad, how you doing, Brad? Hey, good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It, Dave is in New Zealand. So you guys oh. hang out all the time, right? 
never have, but uh, now I have a really good reason to go. Yeah. Okay. So how did how did this tell me about this project? How did this mashup happen from around the world? Yeah. So um, I guess kind of skipping over some of my backstory, which we can we can touch on that later. Um, I was listening to Head to Head and Dave was a guest on it and um, towards the end of his interview he started uh, mentioning that he was working on um, kind of like a homebrew retheme of uh, this electromechanical uh, freedom game and he was turning it into Led Zeppelin but uh, the caveat was that he didn't have the art shops to do the back glass I think that was specifically what he called out and uh, that he was looking for a Led Zeppelin fan somebody that uh, would be interested in collaborating on that and it uh, it was just kind of the right time in my life for a few different reasons that I immediately uh, emailed him based on uh, just that little description that he gave and kind of within 30 minutes he had responded that he, he liked my work and he thought uh, thought it was a decent fit okay like you said though let's 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 back this up two seconds brad i want you tell us how you got into pinball and what brought you up to this point uh okay so um i mean pinball for me kind of goes back to um childhood but in kind of a like a surface way i never really learned to properly play um it wasn't really until my mid-30s that i started diving deeper into the hobby and learning about all the techniques that you know we're all aware of um, here, but um, you know, as a, a kid of like the late '80s and '90s, like things like the Adams Family were sort of ubiquitous. It seemed like every sports bar or restaurant had Adams Family, so that was something that you know, no matter where it went, and as we moved a few different places around the states growing up, that was always a game that I recognized and felt like I could play, uh, even though I really didn't know how to play it. Um, and I had a friend growing up that had a couple machines in his basement. He had a Matahari and a high speed. And then um, going to my dad's college reunions, you know, I'd be over in the corner of the bar playing pinball while he and his buddies were catching up and drinking. So, um, yeah, it was kind of a nostalgia thing. And then um, now as as an adult, I got to a point with my day job where uh, I'd been there for a while. I was designing licensed merchandise, um, mostly apparel, uh, but also wallets and things. Uh, a lot of Harry Potter, Wonder Woman, Batman, that sort of stuff. And I reached a point where I was ready to kind of take a leap of faith and cut the security of that and pursue uh, more art festival type things, art, you know, gallery shows and freelance work in my online shop. And uh, that was March of last year. And almost, I don't know, it seemed like almost immediately after that, I was suddenly uh, newly interested in pinball. I don't know why. I think I just was thinking nostalgically about playing things like Adam's family 
and that you know I always got excited when I would see pinball but it wasn't something that had come around much lately and I don't know there was kind of like a snowball effect where I just started running some searches and then I realized that there were places around town to play um, I'm in the Dallas Fort Worth area by the way um, so there's a lot of um, barcade you know style places to go um, and so with kind of the new freedom that I had in my professional and personal life I started drawing more inspiration from pinball and listening to podcasts and kind of learning you know how how deep it can go so this past year has been kind of like an adventure of, of learning and trying to up my skills and and so while all of that is going on, then I hear this, you know, on head to head with Dave that he's looking for a collaborator and it just, it was the right time for me to kind of embrace that kind of opportunity. So was this your first ever attempt at doing pinball art and a, a play field? Yeah. Yeah. As far as a machine goes, uh, I was dabbling a little bit with uh, some you know, pinball inspired art, um, but never an actual like functional play field and back glass. Dang, that's pretty crazy. I'm, I'm not gonna lie, like looking at this, if you guys haven't checked out the video, we'll put a link in the show notes for you to go check it out. But looking at this, I mean, this thing is insane looking at the artwork and for it to be your first up, uh, up to bat attempt, it's it's hit it out of the park for me. Yeah, basically, I so while you've been talking, actually this whole interview, I just keep watching this endless loop of that and thinking that is this doesn't look like a first-time effort. This looks like an experienced uh, pinball artist, which is shocking that he's like, you know, I, I just uh, did this thing. I don't know. Uh, no big deal. May delete it later. You know, it's it's like those vague Instagram quotes. Where it's like, yeah, I don't know if this is any good. And I'm looking at it thinking, this is a really interesting design. I I like it has a very distinctive style, but it certainly fits with that retro, uh, like late 70s, early 80s vibe. So yeah. it fits perfectly. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's that's kind of by design. I mean, um, I appreciate you saying that. A lot of that does come from our effort for it to match the era of the machine for it to sort of match, uh, you know, what you would expect from Led Zeppelin, but it does certainly deviate from kind of the style of their, their record covers and everything from the time. But uh, Dave, Rudder Dave, he pointed out uh, Captain Fantastic as sort of a point of reference stylistically. Yeah. So that was uh, what I was keeping in mind with the groovy sort of character style that's happening on the back glass. Mm -hmm. And um, I did that without any thought towards the play field. Um, it might have just been me putting it out of my mind or not knowing for sure whether that was something that I was going to be working on for him. I just focused strictly on the back glass to start. And um, it's, it's worth mentioning that he gave me 
the most incredible exhaustive details uh, measurements and uh, he has a friend Jeremy that is a designer that did an amazing job of creating a template for the play field um, based on Dave's measurements and if you go on the pin side and look at the rotor Dave uh, Led Zeppelin Valley 1976 thread he did a really amazing job of documenting this entire process from, you know, start to finish, uh, taking the old machine, stripping it down, uh, showing the measurements on the backside of the glass, everything. It's, it's amazing what he's done, paring it down and, and, you know, his vision for building it back up into what it is now. My role in the whole thing was relatively easy. I, you know, I had the benefit of a lot of time. Uh, I think that was one of the best things about this project is that there was really no deadline. Um, but the fact that he gave me such great measurements and uh, his friend Jeremy putting together that uh, illustrator file for the, the play field really gave me a foundation that uh, I was able to run with. It, it took a little, little while to wrap my brain around it I had to kind of just stare at it for a long time. And um, I'd say one of the hardest parts of the process was deciding what I could throw away from the original play field. Yeah. Uh, deciding, you know, what was critical to the gameplay, what shapes that had been sort of built into that artwork, uh, which of those were kind of arbitrary or, or necessary. And I think that for me really was the hardest part and, Kind of had to just tinker with it for a while until it started to gel into something. And David was super easy to please. So, so, so looking at the project, you said that um, he kind of gave you Captain Fantastic as a template along with the measurements and whatnot. Was he pretty much like, this is what I want, now go? And you had kind of free range from there? Totally, yeah. Awesome. And then the other question I have following up to that is, did you end up doing re – I, were you a Led Zeppelin fan? And if not, did you end up doing a lot of research to figure out what you wanted in there? Uh, well, yes to both. I mean, definitely like a hard rock metal guy. Um, and Led Zeppelin is definitely close to my heart. So I was uh, confident kind of jumping at it from that angle. And art for music is a big inspiration for me. Um, so it wasn't a stretch whatsoever to work on it, but um, you know, diving into it, I did kind of start from the beginning in their catalog and really try to live in it for for a while there. So, if you're doing these, uh, basically these homebrew passion projects, I mean, we we've seen them before. We've seen uh, there's a, a Minions thread. Uh, they're trying to uh, do their own retheme of the pinball machine. We've seen the Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, We've also seen the Iron Maiden retheme before uh, Iron Maiden came out. So if someone's thinking of doing this, are there any sort of considerations, um, licensing, being able to reproduce the art for a, for a passion project? It, were, were there anything like that that limited what you could do? Well, we didn't really concern ourselves with the licensing, to be honest. It's completely... Um unofficial uh, there's no chance of reproducing it as a product well right but i'm wondering as in it is that 
if you're doing something for yourself with no intent of selling, is there any issues with you guys doing this project? I, do you see no. what I'm saying? Like if Led Zeppelin said, well, they can't really do that. I, 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 don't, I don't know enough about licensing to know what is permiss permissible and what is forbidden. Yeah, yeah, I, I get you. Um, I mean, it's definitely unofficial. It's, it's not endorsed in any way or licensed, but it's not really something that that we would worry about because we're not doing anything for profit here. It's strictly a a home collector fan treatment. Okay. Yeah, I think it falls under like a fair use act or something like, like with no intent to to sell. That doesn't really matter if you you can make whatever you want in your backyard. Yeah. I mean, well, as long I, as you're not going to sell it. Sure. So. I and mean, the question is: is this a is this a backlash or did you print it? Because I know sometimes when you go to a printer, they will say, "Oh, I can't really." print that out because of licensing restrictions. So, you know, if, is this a back glass? Is that on polycarbonate? Like, that seems to be the biggest issue. Like, for example, I'm a big Rush fan, and I would love to have a set of Rush coasters just of all the albums. But uh -huh. I think that I would run into issues if I just went to a shop and said, hey, I just want to put make all these decals so I can stick them on whatever. Yeah, yeah, I, I see what you're saying there. Um yeah, probably the, the most troublesome element is that um, <laughs> we used we used the Led Zeppelin logo and we used the Valley logo mm -hmm. just because we wanted it to feel. It feels authentic. It feels like something that they would have made. And it, yeah, that you're you're trying to get it to be um, intrinsically cohesive. As in, if you walked into a bar in 1979, could you see? this being in the bar and i the the answer is yes this looks like something that they would make and it could sit next to captain fantastic without missing a beat and so you're trying to make sure that it fits that i don't know that back to the future test where if you went back in time could does would this fit in the era and you would have you would have to have the led zeppelin logo and you'd have to have the ballet logo yeah exactly right and that's that was dave's intention he wants people to walk into his collection and see it and go i didn't know that they made a, a led zeppelin yeah yeah exactly yeah that was his intention from the very beginning and so we designed it around those parameters um one uh it, it's a uh, <laughs> kind of a detour from what you're asking but i think one thing that really made the project feasible is that with it being an electromechanical and then you strip the art, you're not having to concern yourself with the sound effects or the music or anything like that. Right. It's just bells and chimes. And I know he's working on rigging it up so that it, it plays a different song for each player. Um, but as far as having to re-theme the elements of the original game, you can do a whole lot more with an EM than you can with, you know, something current. Yeah, it, it certainly makes it more simple. Because you you're right, you don't have the soundtrack element, but it would be cool if you could integrate it. Yeah, so he'll, he'll have it rigged up so that, you know, when you fire up a new game, it's, you know, I, I pretty electronic. In some ways, that that's problematic, though, because 
I know that there are people like I again I grew up on Iron Maiden and so yeah that was actually I've I've told the story before that's my first concert that I snuck out to when I was 14 and I went to Iron Maiden so the theme works fine for me and I would love having one in the house however I've heard of people saying hey this isn't really my style of music and the music uh, eventually detracts from their enjoyment especially in a home uh, in, in a home environment because they hear it over and over again as opposed to once or twice a week at the bar. But I guess you could say that about any game that has music in it, right? Yeah. No, I, absolutely. And I th- that's why I think Jurassic Park made a very smart move in keeping the uh, the, the score, the soundtrack. It's th- That was what, uh, what drove Star Wars as something that I thought, yes, this is something that as soon as you hear that John Williams score, it takes you into that into that element. And if you don't have it, then yeah, I, I guess it's a fine line. You're always trying to find how much is enough and how much is too much. Yeah, yeah, right. I haven't gotten to see uh, a Jurassic Park in person or play it yet, but I think that's great that it fires up the music right away and it gives you the animation of the chopper like it's dropping you off at the park. It's very immersive in that way yeah so looking at this artwork what was your favorite part to work on uh well let's see uh each character you know i did separately uh, i really enjoyed integrating the whole back glass together in sort of vaguely the shape of like a martial amp yeah um oh that's cool yeah I, yeah cool yeah, it's kind of just like a frame device to uh, kind of tie it all together and reinforce the theme. Um, I'm, I'm fond of that detail. And it, it was, it feels like it was much later that I ended up working on the play field. Um, so they almost feel like separate projects for me entirely. And then the, uh, the portrait art that we did for the plastics in the play field, it's a little bit more realistically rendered. Um, at least within like the spectrum of my work, uh, the back glass is a little more like kind of groovy, cartoony, and then I think the the playfield art is a little maybe uh, I don't know grittier looking. Yeah. Um, but I like all of those things. I, I feel like they're all fairly true to to me and what I try to do from one project to another. Um, of course, you know, all along the way, you're just trying to imagine like, man, it's going to be cool when this is all pieced together. I hope it looks really cool. And, you know, part of it, working across the world from Dave, I had to just kind of imagine what he was planning to do when he put it all back together. Um, There were certain design decisions that he had already settled on or he was kind of running running with on his own like uh he built his own stencils yeah I, I, i'm looking at those the side art yeah yeah the side art and then uh he did the the pop bumpers um he did those um so just the decision of you know the pops being white you know whereas in my original mock-up i did them black so it was kind of fun in that way to to get some little surprises how it all got pieced back together 
So besides this Led Zeppelin project, you've also worked on uh, a couple different pinball art projects. So it looks like uh, of your own, uh, one being the Texas Pinball Festival poster of 2019. Uh, for the people that haven't seen this, um, it is a it's like a blue hue or it's a poster done in blue hues, but it's an alien abducting a, a pinball machine up into the sky. Can you tell us kind of where some of the inspiration from that came from and, and how this even came about that you were, you got asked to do it? Yeah, sure. Well, I should clarify, they didn't ask me to do it. I, it was totally a self-initiated project. I was working on a series of posters. Um, I had done a treatment for an Adams Family uh, tribute poster that I had at a, a gallery show out in LA at gallery 1988 they do their annual crazy for cult um, art show that is really popular uh, and mostly it's movie themed but i wanted to sort of take advantage of that because i feel like the adams family pin sort of transcends the movie even yes i think it, i agree it it's had more life um so anyway i did that for that show and then i followed it up with a twilight zone and then this was all just uh, leading me towards Texas Pinball Festival, which is really just in my backyard. It's, I don't know, 25 minutes away. And um, so I was very excited to be a vendor for the first time. And I was getting you know, a few different pieces together in that vein. And what the TPF poster started as was a tribute to Attack from Mars. Mm-hmm. But it started to kind of veer off into this... Uh, I don't know, this Western vibe. And it didn't really feel like Attack from Mars anymore. So I reached out to Ed Vanderveen uh, at TPF to see if it was okay if I used the name Texas Pinball Festival or TPF on the poster. And he was totally fine with it. He was all for it. He just said, hey, use our logo and maybe give us a handful of them. And that was that was great. So I did that. And yeah. And those are all 3D, by the way, with the red and blue glasses. That's sort of my weird, goofy specialty. Well, that's what I was going to follow up with is why why 3D? Like, I, I don't know many artists out there that do 3D, and that seems to be your specialty. What what made you gravitate towards 3D and the old style blue and red glasses? Yeah, yeah it's it was just a weird curiosity. Um, I've always liked art in the gallery uh, context that extends off the wall in some way. Uh, I bought a painting in Santa Fe years ago that was built out in three dimensions and it, that sort of thing always just kind of trips me out and makes a piece more interesting. And I think, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago I was working mostly in black and white and it seemed like a logical conclusion i guess that uh, if there are 3d comic books at one point in time then i should be able to make my drawings work in 3d somehow and you know it's it's been like i don't know nine years since then and just a lot of trial and error and uh self-teaching and it's sort of taken on a life of its own so do you do you put it through a program and actually like how does it work? How, how do you make something three D? Because I've never obviously when they did this in the fifties and you know the the Cowboys and Indians stuff and when they had the you know the 
take the Back to the Future thing again, they had these 3D things. How does that actually, how do you do that? Uh, I, I'm assuming there's a computer program now, but they don't do that. Now. They didn't do that then. And how do you do it? Well, I don't know how they did it, to be honest. Um, I work digitally for the most part, start to finish these days, just for flexibility's sake. I like drawing on an iPad mm -hmm. and working in Illustrator and Photoshop. And there's an app called Procreate. Um, and the the 3D element, as far as my work goes, is a lot of manually shifting lines and recoloring and selectively pushing things forward and backward in that way. Um, so it's it's kind of a goofy thing that I don't know if anyone is doing it the way that I do, and you know that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I just like I like the nostalgic interactive element. Um, and when I go out on site, if I'm, you know, doing an art festival or an art show, it's, it's just a fun way to get people engaging with the work. Would you ever consider doing a, um, that would be interesting to see a pinball machine retheme and actually put on the glasses and, and have it have that 3d, uh, print job at the same time. That would be really interesting. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think. That would definitely be interesting. I'd, I'd be curious to see how it would work with all the lights flashing at you and everything. That's true. It, um, it'd probably work better with a, with an old EM that doesn't have the uh, you know the pin stadium type lights in it that uh, the modern games have. I think you're right. It's probably a retro. It would be a retro feel. Yeah, but it could still work. And I think what interests me in pinball as far as the graphics go is it it's consistent with the way that i think which is in 3d but in flat layers right mm -hmm. so like you've got your plastic on the play field they're flat but they are elevated you know so you've got the third dimension to it and like uh i don't know medieval madness comes to mind like the archers down on the uh mm -hmm down on the slings or on the um, the outlanes they're you know they're printed on the transparent plastic and so it looks like they're standing in front of that piece of hardware and i think there's some cool 3d like physically 3d stuff that could be done there um in more of a capacity than is done today but that's just uh that's a curiosity i'd have to tinker with it and see so if you had if someone came to you and said i want you to re-theme a pinball machine or hey maybe stern or jersey jack or uh, one of the indies call you uh what would be some of your dream themes that you would like to do sean of the dead sean of the dead yeah sean of the dead. i i, I would buy that <laughs> I, I i think i mean Games these days have so many different modes, but I think I love that movie and there's objectives throughout it, right? Like you've got to go pick up Liz, you got to kill Philip. Uh, you know, they got the jukebox at the end. You got to kill the queen, you know? Yeah. I, I think I think my favorite is that his entire goal is to do exactly what he did at the very beginning where they said, what are you going to do? We're going to go go to the pub. We'll wait for, wait for the end of the world, and that's exactly what they did in the movie. 
wait for all this to blow yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, it could even be your wizard mode. Yeah, waiting, waiting for it to, for it to blow, blow over. over. <laughs> well, also, yeah. his, his uh, friend turns into a zombie, too. But I mean, spoiler alert, yeah. Because <laughs> actually, I, I would, you know, that's a, that's a funny theme, but I would consider hot fuzz. Because I think that is that is hilarious. I, I, yeah. That is by far my favorite, uh, my favorite of his movies. Yeah, they're all great. I I've actually only seen uh, The World's End once. I've been meaning to go back and watch it again because I've seen the others, you know, a dozen times. What, what what do you have on the future coming up? Uh, well, let's see. Pinball Life has their like annual open house. I did their t-shirt design for that um i think that's all sold out but it's coming up pretty soon and then um i've been working with jason at pinhead um it's an australian brand like an apparel brand that's all pinball themed um pinhead australia on uh, instagram that's where i follow them but they're also on pinhead.com.au so there's some cool designs that we have that are coming out very soon there and then uh, I don't know kind of excited about the future of pinball and hopefully you know staying active in in that space I'm trying to get more involved just in the the local community here Um, going to like league nights and and stuff like that. I mostly I feel like I would be uh, like a home use player, but I don't own any machines, so I need to make more of an effort to actually get out and engage with the other people that are playing on location a little more because I'm still sort of like a solo player for the most part. Yeah, yeah. The the, uh, the nice thing is if you have a location that keeps the games in good repair, that's always been the challenge of location games is that. Half of them have been uh, ridden so hard that they, you know, if, if you, it would be like finding a car with, with two and a half wheels and a steering wheel is broken. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty clear sometimes if the, you know, the location owns the machines themselves or if they have like an operator um, because we have, there's a place here called Bishop Cidercade that is uh it's bishop cider company they make hard ciders that are really quite good um but they turned the front end of their brewery into this amazing um like free play arcade and they've got uh, it, it kind of changes numbers from time to time front from time to time but i think they have somewhere in the 20 to 30 pin range and they're all in tip-top shape there's always somebody there working on them um, they're always getting like the newest, like limited editions, and uh, that's a really great place f- for me to go play. But more often, I'm going to like a local, uh, a local joint that's maybe in slightly less high repair. I don't know if I caught this, and you you may have said this earlier, but how long have you been into pinball? Well, I would say I've, I've always loved it since I was a kid, but it's really been the last couple of years that I've started learning a lot more about it and keeping up with it. Okay. Um, so it's kind of an exciting time for me because I think I 
came back into it at the right time. The industry is certainly on an upswing. And there's always new, <laughs> there's always new pins coming out and always new opinions about it. And even if I can't run out and see it or play it myself, I can listen to folks like yourself talk about it, or I can get on pin side. It's a, uh, it's a good time to be into it. It really is. Um, speaking, you're getting out more in the local scene and whatnot. What is, what is the game? If you hit the bar or whatever place you go, you see that one pinball machine, you've, you've got to play it. What is your, your addiction right now? What's your, what's your theme or your, your title that you're just, you can't get enough of? Uh, well, it was TNA at Cidercade, but it's, it's not there currently. I need to drive a little further out to a place that does have it, um, that I haven't been to yet, but, um, the joint that's down the street from me, they've got a pretty decent selection of some of like the nineties classics and then some of the newer Sterns. So when I go there, I pretty much go straight to medieval madness, um, Metallica guardians or iron maiden. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I'm, I'm at this stage. I'm really just trying to like work on my flipper skills and stuff. I'm not putting up very good scores. <laughs> You know, when I first got into the hobby, um, I, I feel like I still feel this way today is I, I did get in and I was like, crap, I need to work on my flipper skills. I want to get more competitive. I've learned over time, though, I just I enjoy playing the machine to experience the machine. Uh, I know a lot of people are like, oh, we need it competitive. We need the depth we need. And and I did just recently play Jurassic Park and I love the depth and I wanted to keep exploring it. But that's that's the thing I love about pinball. Is it, it always feels like there's a nook and cranny of the code on the play field that you can explore. And so, I, I don't know. That's how I enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. But, it, yeah, man. that's It's yeah. always more fun if you're better, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, th yeah. I think for me, with the, the flipper skills, part of it is just getting better with my aim, you know, to where I can be purposeful with with the modes and the shots. Because a lot of times it, it still feels pretty haphazard. Yeah. Well, and there's nothing more frustrating than trying to you get a mode started on a game that you have to you have to complete the mode and it's like shoot the left orbit and you cannot hit the left orbit to save your life. <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of embarrassing. Like you feel like that should be a given that you can hit the left orbit. Well, if, if you have if your skills are to the level where you're always playing rescue ball, or uh, you're always out of control, then that's not fun either. So, you know, that, that's, that's how my kids play. My kids just keep hitting, hitting the, uh, the buttons until the, uh, until the ball drains. And so, yeah, it's, it's certainly more fun when, you know, if you can, if you can take a laser shot and say, I want to hit that, that it makes it a lot more fun. Yeah. See, that's why I always recommend South Park to everyone because the ho gobble holes on that thing are the size of your fist. <laughs> yeah, you feel like a pinball god playing uh, playing uh, South Park, but then you want to destroy your own world because you walk away after ball two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been wanting to get back. I love South Park. I've, I've been binging it from the beginning. And uh, as far as I know, there isn't a South Park machine really close to me. It's it's so not worth it. <laughs> it, 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 it yeah, it, it is hot garbage. It is it is so bad. Where I, I'm not kidding. I think I was playing it. It was the first time I played it. And after ball two, I was like, I am so bored of this game. I walked away. <laughs> oh, but the fart sounds. Come on. 
<laughs> I know, I know. You want to get Mr. Hanky out of the toilet, though. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, I I appreciate the the intelligence and the genius of South Park. I will say it's just not my type of. Uh, there are some episodes that I find very funny, and there's a lot of times where I'm like, this is just over the top. Yeah, <laughs> this is too much. I'm going to bed. <laughs> A little too much, yeah. You can tell how old that that game is because the show has come a really long way from the oh. references that are in the game. Yeah. No, it, it, it it's true. I mean, it, it's hey, they are creative geniuses. I totally get it. I just I just haven't been able to watch it that much. Yeah. Well, uh, Brad, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk you up for for a second, man. These posters are freaking awesome. Uh, you sent me the Twilight Zone one, oh, yeah. and we got it here and my kid put on the red and blue glasses and it's funny because he just stared at the poster for I swear 10-15 minutes and then he starts walking around the room to see if everything else is in 3D yeah (laughs) what if the world were in 3D (laughs) (laughs) so I'm going to tell I'm going to tell the listeners right now you've got to go to Brad's website if what is that website Brad yeah there's a few different URLs they'll go to the same place bradalbright.com albrightillustration.com uh, oldschool3d.com it's all the same stuff um, and then at Brad Albright on Instagram you can see a lot of things there work in progress and whatnot and then Facebook Albright Illustration is the page where I dump stuff like that you gotta go to these websites guys these posters are awesome and I noticed the one that you sent to me is a uh, limited so is there only limited run of these adams family and twilight zones and all the other posters you do yeah so i do i do my posters in uh 16 by 20 size that's just my standard and i always do the the biggest size as the signed well they're all signed but they all uh it's in a numbered edition and uh yeah i i like everything to be an easily framed size so i try to keep them in sizes where you can just go buy a frame off the shelf. Um, some people have asked me about the, the Led Zeppelin artwork in prints, and I've I've sent a couple of them out. The caveat that I have is that uh, the back glass works great as a normal size poster, but then the play field ends up being this kind of goofy size where you'd have to get like a custom frame made, which is fine for you know a lot of people. They don't mind doing that. But uh, uh, that was kind of an aside. <laughs> you were asking about the limited editions, I guess. Dude, these these are great. They're fantastic. So, um, like I said, everyone that's listening, at least go take a look. Uh, Brad had mentioned to me, he's like, "Well, take the glasses, and you can actually look at my website and see stuff in 3D." And the wonderful part about these posters too is you don't even need the 3D glasses. You because I know some of that older stuff, you look at it, and it looks like someone had smoked something, and you, you didn't, it didn't make any sense until you put the glasses on. These yeah. stand by themselves. They look great in the collection up on your wall next to your pinball machine. They look, they look fantastic. Yes, thank you. That's uh, that's something that I'm very conscious of when I'm working. I, I don't like the old style in in the cases where that red and blue distortion is so extreme that you just can't even look at it. I really, I know that people aren't gonna just have their glasses at all times and you don't want to have to look at it that way all the time. So I try to find a happy medium. So if you want to, if you want to make that 
game room look all nice you, you better go hit up brad man this is this is the stuff so <laughs> thank you oh and i'll be at uh houston arcade expo in november um cool almost forgot to mention that houston um, arcade and then you're playing on tpf in in march correct yeah definitely uh tpf in march and you know part of my journey this past year year and a half has been um at first i was doing annie in every show i could go do anywhere to get in front of people and then uh this year it's been a lot more selective and i'm i just i really enjoy this community specifically and i think uh, the more kind of focused events like this that i can find the better so you know i don't know two years from now maybe i'll be driving up to chicago who knows well, cool man we appreciate you coming on and taking the time out of your your super busy schedule um to hang out with us we hope everything goes great and uh yeah man thanks for coming on absolutely thank you for having me and i'll i'll continue uh repping the podcast at the dog park with my hat awesome perfect <laughs> yeah thanks brad we'll uh, we'll see you down in texas next year all right thanks guys all right scott that was fantastic what what did you think what stood out to you between the two interviews you know, it's it's interesting how if you can find your little piece of the pod of the pinball community, because there's so many different places you can go. You can be a home collector. You can just be a casual player. You can be a uh, you know you can be an enthusiast. You can be someone who listens to to pinball podcasts. You can be someone who goes to the term. Uh, there's so many different areas, and um, people it, it it's always amazing to me how many different ways people can contribute in this community that uh, i'm still finding more ways that people are connected i agree and it's awesome that something as simple as you know brad talked about he heard roto dave on head to head and that's how they started to collaborate uh it's awesome that we live in a hobby where you can kind of reach out like that. Well, if you look at it, if you look at it for Magic Girl, um, in the bright spot about having Magic Girl is that it introduced us to new artists, and it was a yep. new way of getting people into it. And so, if Zombie Yeti does Magic Girl, which really never got made, and who knows, may get made in the future. However, the pinball community said wow, that guy's really good at doing that. You should bring him in. And that certainly transformed him into a different, uh, you know, it opened up different avenues. And so even even a bad story can be spun into a positive story too. I'm glad we got those guys on, especially with, you know, we've been talking about Clear Coat for a month and a half now. It feels like it won't go away. And so we figured, why not? Well, let's, let's get someone on who deals with Clear Coat every stinking day. Yeah. And so... It was awesome to have Chris on as well. Well, it's amazing because obviously what Chris does is, I mean, he is a, the reason why it's high-end pins, because he is a high-end restore, uh, restorer. That's what he does. It is, it is reassembling a Rolls-Royce, you know, bit by bit by one person. And so yep. it's, it is, it, it, he admitted it, it's a different process than mass producing something. And so something that he can do for a clear coat, it can be completely different than how they're using the clear coats and everything else. And so there certainly are challenges with uh, with scalability of manufacturing. And so 
uh, obviously they're they're still trying to dial it in. <laughs> and the good yep. news is that the at least the manufacturers um, seem to acknowledge there's an issue and they are trying to deal with it because they don't want to send out a product that's that's a problem either. Well, and the, the wonderful part, you know, the the shiny light, like you said, manufacturers are taking care of the issue at hand. Um, if you listen to the most recent Slam Tilt podcast, uh, they were talking about this. They've had issues in the past. What do they do? They contact Stern. Stern takes care of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know our friend Tommy over at this flipping podcast. He's already had issues with his Jurassic Park. He had issues with his Iron Maiden. But you know what? He reaches out to Stern. It might take a little bit, but they take care of him. And it, it's good to see also that Jersey Jack is stepping up to the plate and helping with the Willy Wonka stuff as well. So, yeah, it seems that all that we've talked about it before, judge a manufacturer by their customer support. And it's not just uh, the vocal minority who are screaming on Penn side, because we really know one side of the story. We don't know both sides of the story. But every time my experience, when I've sent in something for Stern, or I've sent in something for Jersey Jack, or I've even sent in something for Chicago Gaming Company, I've always found a satisfactory response. Um, And so if you're going to buy a product, buy someone who can stand behind their product. You're never gonna have a perfect product. That's not not realistic. Um, And so as long as there are issues that they will try to resolve, then you're still winning. And you know what? Speaking of all this, um, I want to transition really quickly. I think you owe Stern an apology really quick. Me? I owe Stern an apology. Why is that? Yes, because they finally took your advice, and we never acknowledged it. Okay, wh- what is that? Now I'm, now I'm curious. The advice is showcase your pinball machine at the major events. What they've been doing re- recently is they showcase Jurassic Park what two weeks before Pinburg? Yep. Yeah, that's they, a major event. Well, they've owned the show. Uh, yeah, you're right. I, I the rant that I did uh, way back in the day when, and I and <laughs> I, I I do understand why they did it, and I may have been a little hyperbolic. They wanted to give monsters because, uh, you know, they had um, the two living monsters uh, you know, actors. They had them there, and I think they didn't want to steal the spotlight from that. But yeah. yes, I, I appreciate that man be, you know, be the big dog. I want them to, and yes, uh, actually ever since that, uh, a dark night for Stern post Stern has been really amazing about what they've done. And I don't know if it's, it's, uh, bringing Zach on board and revamping their PR. Um, I will also, I will acknowledge too, that, um, Jersey Jack has upped their game too. And so it, I, it's a good thing that they're all trying to become more of a well, well-oiled machine. Yep. Well, and that brings me to my next point, though, too, is we have one of the biggest pinball shows coming up, Pinball Expo, uh, coming up here in the middle of October. And guess what just happened? And Elvira drops. Elvira drops. We've got – we're a month away, and this thing is – it's probably getting primed and ready and setting down at Pinball Expo for hundreds of thousands of people to play. Yeah. And so um, it's just, it's, it's an awesome time. And especially I think it's smart for them to do it before a show. Cause then you get the game there. They can work some of the kinks. Uh, you don't get the whole crappy photos from 
back behind the yeah you don't get the leaked photos from the promo uh orientation i'm sure that they did a, a week before that someone's taking a screenshot and sending it out yes it, it, this is done right and i appreciate that the while we still have leaks and still have rumors of games they seem to be a lot faster at hey you want information we're gonna get you information yep so uh, yeah it's it's been great i and, and i respect how challenging it is for them to uh, pr is pr is a hard job and if you haven't tried it then you don't understand how difficult it is especially when you're trying to get to control the message to be able to manufacture a machine or to develop a machine and get it all ready and release it at the right time uh it that is so hard and so i i have nothing but but sympathy for them trying to do it the right way however they've also done an amazing job of releasing high-res pictures doing a, a gameplay and so you're able to get once the uh, once it gets close enough that the inevitable leaks will come out you know that the official release is coming very soon and you're gonna don't even bother with all the grainy uh you know the grainy washed out pictures just wait a week and you'll see the good ones so i gotta ask you what are your first impressions of elvira uh you know uh, elvira's tough um in today's day and age when you're taking a character that uh we all i'm not going to rehash the history of pinball and um is it okay to be sexy in 2019? And I, and I don't know what the answer is. I think it's such, it, it, it generates such challenging feelings in so many people. And, and I, I'm, I'm not saying appropriate, inappropriate. What I am saying is that it's a challenging topic. Now, the good news is, is Cassandra's always been very gracious. She's always been very embraced by the pinball community. And so if there is any theme that even remotely has you know a, a a sexy component or an attractive component i'm not sure exactly how you want to label it i think that she is the one that can pull it off um and so uh i'm i'm glad that there is uh, a a, um, a figure in pinball that can pretty universally uh say hey you know what this is fun Let's get back to the fun in pinball. And even a theme that could be challenging, we can still all just agree there's there's a level of fun that she is bringing to it. And I so I, I appreciate this, uh, that there seems to be less drama associated with it. I'm actually surprised that there's less drama, but I'm also relieved that there's less drama. Well, and I think our friends Martin and Joe over at Head to Head had a pretty good discussion of where is the line drawn um you know they kind of discussed like whoa nelly versus elvira mm -hmm. mates because elvira is a, a strong figure type and she's the one that's telling the joke she's the one that's and so it, it is it is interesting to to think in that point i was wondering because uh, i came home yesterday or the day before and my wife was watching dukes of hazard and i thought i wonder if you could do like a Dukes of Hazard pinball machine from that perspective of Daisy Duke. I mean, uh, she does wear some skimpier clothes and whatnot, um, but she is a strong, powerful woman, and she is portrayed as that. 
uh, she can stand on her own two feet and uh, if a boy slaps her on the butt at the bar she kicks him on his back and sticks her, th- her foot on his throat you know what i'm saying yeah so i i just don't know but putting that aside um because i don't think we'll ever figure out that rubik's cube <laughs> no uh, putting that aside i am pleasantly surprised with this i know that people are, have said it's it's just a basic family out i don't mind basic family out i don't think that's a big issue I think it's wise the amount of toys that are in here. I think the toys, if they're they're done properly, which the, the video that did like a full in-depth three and a half minute of what all the toys did, um, I think if they work great, then awesome. Because um, that's the thing with me. I, I'm not – don't get me wrong. I love Lyman with Batman 66. I love the code. I do not like the play field. It's just, it feels clunky to me. I hate that the Riddler's hole rejects. I don't like the turntable. It's just, it's not my cup of tea. And so when when something is as beautifully in-depth as Batman 66 is stuck at that price range of 7,500 or higher because of a turntable, it just makes me shake my head. Now, the flip side of that coin, you look at Elvira, and it's stuck at 75 or higher because of all the toys in it. Yeah, it's a basic fan layout, but that haunted house is cool the top of the house spinning you got the gargoyles you've got the crypt which i thought was really cool i don't know if that's been done yet where um there's maybe south park we were talking about anywho the crypt i don't know if you've seen this is actually in the ramp and so you you shoot up the ramp and as it comes down if lock is lit it will go the coffin top will open up the ball goes in the coffin top goes down if it's not lit, the ball just rolls right over the top of the coffin and keeps on playing. I don't think we've seen much of that, and that's really cool to me. So I was going to say, I just think the price point is deserved on this one, and it it achieves that price point, in my opinion. Yeah, it's it's basically Lord of the Rings is a basic fan layout. Um, they used way, diverters, and they used clever ways to uh, maximize the fan layout and give it variety, which is really what this has done. So I'm reserving judgment until I play it. Um, I think that uh, you can't have a theme that fits everywhere. I think that this theme will fit the genre and the homes that it's going to to fit in. And it will fit in very well in many bar uh, elements. The price point is challenging because usually location pins are geared toward the pro version so yep. i i understand that that can be challenging i uh, in utah i'm not sure i'll be playing one anytime soon i only know of one batman 66 here and so i'm not sure if someone will be buying it i know there are people who are big fans of it and i hope to play it but i really want to get my hands on it the price is uh, it, it's a it's a challenge uh, because if you're looking at a you know, premium Elvira versus a premium Jurassic Park, uh, I'm not. You, you would have to really be in love with the theme or the flow, uh, the Dennis Norderman flow, uh, versus what the new hot game out there, which is Jurassic Park right now. I'm ready to see one. Like you said, though, we probably won't see one here in Utah anytime soon. But I do want to play this. I think it looks really fun. I actually enjoyed Scare Stiff. I know a lot of people say it's a, a kind of shallow when it comes to gameplay. Um, but well, and one of the other complaints, too, is is that uh, there's not enough. There, the 
not enough. What's the crap? The the quotes and stuff get really repetitious. They do. They said when when they when they re, when they released House of Horrors, they have like thirty different game or thirty different movies they're pulling from, uh, plus, and so they'll have plenty of stuff to to work with. Yeah, it and and that's likely where the price point is. You're paying more because perhaps it's a premium game with a premium code set. Um, it seems like Lyman is going to be doing these premium encyclopedic code sets, which uh, I think caters to a, a crowd. And if you are willing to spend the extra three or $400 for what is likely a home game anyway, then I think you'll, you'll get that. And I've said it before, it's wise of Stern to have different markets uh, that they're catering to. So I I, I, agree. I I think this this is a big win for them. Uh, I don't know how many they'll produce because I think the theme is limited to which locations it'll go into and which homes it'll go into. However, I am very grateful that this is uh, it's a it, it seems to be embraced by the pinball community on, on all levels. So I I, I like this new. Um, this namaste kumbaya that we're going through right now well and speaking of the amount that they sell our distributor we go through game exchange out of colorado um when we spoke to jj it wasn't even two hours after this thing had been released to the public and he said his limited editions were almost all gone yeah and that's so they're only selling 400 of the limited editions there's not a specific number on the super le's that we've heard you probably have to contact whoever, but the exclusivity through Fan Club is not true. There are some of the very, very small amounts of the Super LEs at distributors. So just call your distributor, say, hey, mm-hmm. it, do you have a Super LE available? But honestly, I think this could be an evergreen title for Stern. I, I see that the these the the pre- premium level selling for a while now. As long as as long as it comes out of the gates and everyone's loving it, you know. It could be. I they'll certainly make their as Steve Ritchie said in his pinball sem- seminar, hi, I'm Steve Ritchie and I sell pinball machines. I, that's Stern, right? Stern yep. is there yep. to sell pinball machines. And if you can still sell it, they will make it. How many, I, I think they're still making Metallica premiums. So, yep. you know, the, you're, you're still going to, why not? If you can, if you can produce uh, 50 at a time and with the manufacturing process, it makes it very customizable that you can put put a few on the line and do it. So yep. uh, it, it, it's a smart move. I I'm excited to play it and I'm excited to uh, to experience the rule set. Well, and my other my other opinion of this too is I think we'll see a game like this every year or every other year where it's exclusively Lyman Sheets as a code because Lyman's proved that his pins are journey pins that have a lot of depth to them and then uh, they're able to attain a higher price point. So I think these pins are specifically geared to compete with Jersey Jack because Jersey Jack has a lot of depth to their pinball machines, right? They're the, they come into your home, they stay there because it's, I mean, it's Wizard an, of Oz just, it's an encyclopedic rule set. That's the bottom line. Correct. It, it's a, it's an extra level of rules that other games are good, but they don't have, but you're right. You're not going to get to that level on a uh, on a location environment. It has to be a home environment. Yep. 
and so I think I think this is where the whole all stern is pinball everything comes in. Yeah, it's a, it, so. it's a pinball lifestyle. It's a lifestyle brand, right? So I think that wraps it up for Elvira. Uh, we're just excited to get some hands on it, see how it plays. Uh, I th- I think it's a, a home run if if it plays s- smooth as butter. And uh, I mean, you can't go wrong with Lyman Code. You really can't. So yeah, th- um, think of the last Lyman yeah. Code that was bad. It just doesn't exist. It it doesn't. So um, Ghostbuster Code just came out. Dead Flip premiered it with Dwight yesterday. It looks really good. Ru God is actually now in the pinball machine. So that that insert that everyone's like, this isn't used. It's finally being used. And so I think everyone's really excited about this one. I think even though the layout could be a little clunky and airbally, I think with the mods that have come out to help with the flipper gap, uh, to help with the airballs, I think if you, you mod this the right way and with this new code, it could be a keeper for the collection. It could be. Uh, the theme is great. The art is great. Um I I still prefer the flow of different games, and so I would lean toward other ones. But you know what? Whoever kept their uh, their Ghostbusters at their home waiting for that code, now is your day. Go download it. Go try it out. Send us feedback. Tell us what you think. Yeah, I, I want to hear about it. Cause, and I also want to hear if you have put in the center post that uh, into your game, the one that you don't have to actually drill into the play field. Uh, I want to know what your thoughts are on that. If it makes it a better game, uh, if you enjoy it more because of it, not too. Yeah, I, so. you know, my attitude is if it's your game and you want to uh, do something to it, and certainly something that is removable, give it a shot. I, I, I heard people say, you know what, it makes it fun. It doesn't make it just yep. a complete and brutal game. I'm, I, pinball should be fun. <laughs> so, really quickly, we got a. Uh... A reply back from um, the email that we received last episode okay. of our ongoing discussion about making pinball more open to the general public. Uh, Robbie, I'm calling him Robbie. Uh, I, I know it's not. I know it's not. <laughs> Anywho, new, I apologize new friend, for totally. New friend Robbie. Yeah, I totally slaughter his name every time. I do apologize, man. But he said he spoke with the location owner and said that they have it set up so there's no replays, but they have extra balls only because he's referring to the Roger Sharp comment that replays are self-inflicted wounds. Okay. Um, and now that he understands that concept, he's more on board. And now that he understands that position uh, of an operator, he likes it. He wanted us to discuss really quickly, though, what are some of the challenges and approaches to catalyzing uh, – yeah, catalyzing the next generation of pinball enthusiasts, especially since we have kids and whatnot, you know? Yeah, the really, you have to have a location that has a motivated, uh, a motivated person that maintains the games. Uh, if, you, if you buy a game and put it on site, it will get run down and it will just become non-fun. This is my challenge with trying to go and play location pinball is because my games run really well at home. And trust me, I have money and I would love to go and play your games on site. But if you don't maintain them, I'm not going to play them. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's, that's the bottom line. And it's it incorporate it somehow is that it brings people into your establishment. And so 
you and you have to find someone who is a tech and and I know that that's challenging but you have to invest in that uh, if you you're not going to have the same type of uh, you're not going to have the the same person who comes in who just wants to play a video game people will drive hours to go play your game it's new money into your establishment and so if you're willing to do that and set it up so you have you know food drinks whatever to make it a money maker that's fine but that's really the only way it's going to uh, it's going to be maintained uh, it's going to be profitable if your machines play well. That's why you have places like Sunshine Laundry Mat. That's why you have Netherworld. That's why you have Logan's Arcade. You have all those places that good players will go play because your yep. games are good. But if you're putting out a crap product, people are not going to give it to you. Well, and here's so with you picking the general public side of the coin, I'm going to flip the that flip the coin and talk really about quick about um, the next generation. So he asked specifically kind of like how we get our kids into mm -hmm. it um i make i make every experience with pinball machine with my son positive um i don't ever give him crap for how he's playing um i have some easier games like world cup soccer is a fantastic game because it bodes really well for beginners and it bodes really well for uh, novice slash experts there's depth to it to get to world cup but it's satisfying just to make a goal. Like I've had people come over and uh, I've had teenagers come over to my house, uh, youth groups, and we've turned on the machines and played them and they will stay at world cup because they just love making the goal and hearing goal. I even had a, a young gentleman say, Hey, he'd been to my house twice. And he says, I hope you never get rid of this machine. Cause it's my favorite. And he doesn't even like soccer. So I think the thing is too, is you, you've got to have a positive experience. You have, you have to have, friendlier games don't get me wrong i do love playing some faster meaner games but you've got to have a game that that people that have never played the hobby before feel walk away feeling satisfied playing it so yeah uh well i'll give you the example the example for people of my generation playing contra on the nintendo entertainment system okay so it's a it's a three guy game and it is brutal like you cannot beat it with three guys unless you are amazing, okay? Yep. But mm -hmm. what did everyone do? Everyone put that in and they did up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA start and got 30 guys, okay? Yep. Because it was fun that way. You could actually go to the end of the game and it co okay, so maybe it was cheap. It went to the end of the game. And, but I still play Contra to this day. I put in the the old the old uh, game and I do the code and I just have a fun time because not every pinball pinball game has to be going for the GC it doesn't have to be so brutal that well I just did it just right so I had that one one hundred game you know what sometimes I want a one and four game where it's just fun and now yep. th there's a fine line between making it too easy that you're thinking this ball's never draining and this is boring. So, uh, but I've, I've done that on most of my games. I've actually gone in and really set a lot of things for a lot easier. Just so when people come down, they have that good connection. And yeah. If you want, if you want to make them difficult for you, fine, but have a few games that people will come down and say, Hey, why don't you go play that game? That's fun. And don't send them to uh, walking dead. 
you know, send them to medieval madness. Everybody loves medieval madness. Well, and that's the thing too. Is like, like I said, every time doesn't matter if it's a kid, doesn't matter if it's an adult. If it's their first time playing, make it a positive experience. You know, help them out. Don't overload them. I, I mean, it's hard to do that sometimes when you've been in this hobby for five years. You're like, there's so much depth. Like I have a friend that I started explaining medieval madness, and I kind of got carried away. And he's like, how do you remember all this? And I'm like, I just do. And he's like, well, this applies to every pinball machine, right? I'm like, no, they all have their own individual rules. Mm-hmm. And he's like, now what? Wait, what? And so <laughs> boil it down. Make it basic. If you're going to – I like doing – I've got an attack from Mars. So when someone comes yeah. over and they've never played pinball before and they start playing attack from Mars, if they even destroy one ship, I make it a huge deal. Because if you've never played pinball, and especially where you destroy a ship and it has all the flashing lights and the, the explosions and stuff like that, they're going to remember that that's that's the thing about pinball and every person will say this it doesn't matter if you've been in the pinball hobby for 30 years or if you've been in for 30 seconds pinball is about moments um some of the biggest moments are hitting that jackpot on getaway getting to uh tour the house on adam's family people remember those moments that's why they go back to those nostalgic games they might not be the best in the world uh the games not the people or the people <laughs> they might not be the or best the games in the world <laughs> Or the people but they remember that because of how it made them feel so if you make them feel positive they're going to want to know more they want to get more involved yeah so well it's the same thing as like there that's the reason why they have mini wizard modes even for experienced players because yep. the mini wizard mode they're like yeah i got to that step you need to have that dopamine woo uh, to get you to say i want more of that and i want to get farther so Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that in your home collection, make sure you have a few accessible games. Like, don't make don't make a Pinberg uh, A you know A division quality every time. People will just hate it. Well, and that's what I was talking to you about this week. I think I've officially landed on my favorite era. Big shocker to everyone is the '90s Williams Valley games, mm-hmm. and the reason being is is because the wizard modes are far out enough i don't hit them every time i play the game but they're close enough that i don't i can i can hit them that every once in a while and some of these games are just fantastic when you get to the wizard mode like johnny mnemonic love the wizard mode everything shuts down it goes to power down mode and just the, the light show on that um adam's family same thing scared stiff when you finally actually hit all when you get totally scared stiff the whole game acts like it's breaking down. It just starts freaking out on you. And it's one of the best feelings. It's like, I broke the machine because I was playing so good. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so that's what I love about those. It, it, there's still a challenge to it, but I don't feel like it's a challenge I'll never get to, like, five-year mission on Star Trek. Yeah, and but th- at the same time, there are games that have those, like Valinor. But people, hey, yep. can you destroy the ring? Yeah, I, I got that. You know, and so... There are. That's why there's steps. Make sure there are achievable, fun things. Like make sure pinball's fun. That, that's the bottom line. Make make sure it's fun. Yep. Don't don't take off all the all the uh op- white widen up the outlines. Take off all the rubbers and then have your friends come over and ask them to have a good time. It's not gonna happen. Oh, and the other thing too, if you have people over, don't blow up a game. They get bored really quick. Yeah. I've gotten all the way to um, power failure on Jurassic Park. And the people love the light show, but they get really bored the 15 minutes in between you pressing the start button mm-hmm. and getting to that mode. Well, so. that's why TNA was is such a great home fun game to play because 
you have quick things. Yeah. I, I go I go to my friend's house who has all the Bally Williams games. And yeah, if we're playing a few, you know, a multiplayer game, if one person starts going like really far into it, you're going to kind of lose interest and just start another game. So, well, I think that's an awesome note to end on. Um, once again, if you want to get a restored pin, hit up Chris Hutchins with high end, high end pin restorations, um, or go check out some of that wonderful artwork uh, with bradalbright.com. Uh, we'll put both the links in the show notes. If you want to reach out to us, reach out to us. You can hit us at loserkidpinballpodcast at gmail.com. You can hit us up through Facebook, either Scott Larson or Josh Roop or the Loser Kid Pinball Podcast page. We're even on Instagram. I'm, I'm finding more people are hitting us up on Instagram than on Facebook. Hit us up there. You can send us a direct message, whatever it may be. Um, but we're, we're always happy to hear from you. Uh, we It's funny because we've been chit-chatting with a lot of people. It's just it's good to be involved in the community. Um, last thing, I just did a fresh batch of hats. If you haven't reached out to us and you haven't got a hat yet, as what's now being officially dubbed as the Keith Elwin hat from the last guy that bought a hat from us, um, not you, not, you not trademark and not Keith Elwin endorsed, but he does like the hat too. <laughs> yeah, but but apparently that's what it's known for. I guess I don't know. So sounds fun. But and and Keith, if you're if you're listening, dude, thanks so much, man. It, it, I would have never thought in like when we started this that it would be cool enough for Keith Elwin to wear our hat. So thanks again, man. All right, Scott, you got anything else for us? I don't think so. Uh, catch you in one to two weeks, uh, depending on the. Uh, our, our schedule or the news sources. Awesome, man. Always great talking to you. Okay, signing out.